Hello and welcome to the 2022 Dublin Literary Awards Shortlist Podcast, presented as part of International Literature Festival Dublin. My name is Jessica Trainer, And my name is Sean Hewitt. In this special podcast series, we will explore each novel in detail as we chat exclusively to the authors shortlisted for the award, the winner of which will be announced on the 23rd of May as part of International Literature Festival Dublin, which, like the award, is sponsored by Dublin City Council. Nominated by libraries around the world, the award is the world's most valuable annual prize for a single work of fiction in English, or translated into English, worth €100,000 to the winner or winners. In today's episode, we're looking at Remote Sympathy by Catherine Chiggy, nominated by Auckland Libraries and Dunedin Public Libraries in New Zealand. And in the mornings, we were still hungry. And we said, hunger is the eye of the needle and the point of the needle. It is the knot you can't loosen. It is a red light between your fingers when you hold your hand to the sun. It is the vast eye of the needle. Hunger is the sun huge and empty at noon. The thread pulled through your own lips, under and over and under and over. It is the gulping eye of the needle. Hunger is the mouth of the flooded river too wide to hold itself. It is the stones worn smooth in the gizzard. It is the mouth of the needle. It is the cold throat of the needle. The circling bird, high, high, a hook against the sky. Hunger is the crescent moon, sharp as a broken bone. It is the forest, felled. The knot in the thread and the stitch pulled too tight. The second hand turning on the white face of the watch while the hour hand never moves. Hunger is the gizzard stones grinding themselves to sand. The broken bone caught in your throat. The whittled wood. The bone pecked clean. The swallowed needle. The swallowed river. If you take your hunger in your arms, it will never let you go. Take your hunger in your arms. Thanks for that, Sean. And I hope um, Catherine and our listeners will forgive me for indulging my poet streak and choosing that particular uh, extract because I just, when I read it, I thought it was so beautiful um, and beautifully read too, Sean. I can tell you got it. Um, but, you know, this is a fascinating novel which looks at the history of of. Buchenwald, the concentration camp, through the eyes of a number of different characters, uh, most of whom are fictional, one of whom is based on a, on a real uh, SS officer. But it takes a massive subject matter and and creates a narrative that is, you know, engaging, harrowing at times, uh, quite realistic, but it's also really ambitious in terms of form. You know, we have passages like this one uh, alongside a very kind of clipped and tension filled and dramatic narrative um, of various people trying to survive their engagement with this camp. And then we also have things like this wonderful um, tapestry of voices from the city of Weimar, which really asks us to consider our own complicit nature in how we are bystanders mm. um, during huge events like like the Holocaust in history. Yeah, because the main character of this book, am I right, uh, basically moves in next to uh, Buchenwald yes. and her husband is the um, 
the administrator of the camp? Yes, yeah, based on a real life administrator. So we kind of have two um, main characters. One is Dr. Leonard Weber, who is a, a doctor um, who has invented a machine based on true medical history of the time and um, but that aims to cure tumors uh, through um, various different sound waves and frequencies which was a real area of medical research in the early 20th century um, and then we have Greta Hahn who is the wife of the SS officer uh, who has moved into Buchenwald into the beautiful villas overlooking the forest uh, where the camp is and we start to see the this world very much through her eyes and I think our own our own ideas of, of how complicit we are and aren't are very mm. much tested by our ability to identify with mm. this woman who is of course part of a generation of people who did know what was going on mm. um, and and yet you know it's mm. and it's very interesting and her interaction then with Dr. Leonard Weber without giving too much away um, is interesting too because he has Jewish heritage he ends up having to come to the camp to treat her but also with the hope of saving his wife and child right. um, so it's not a novel that t- goes easy on any of its characters there's no heroes and villains here there's nothing simplistic about it I mean well there are certainly villains but there's it's it's all approached in a way that makes us question our own perhaps kind of cosy ideas mm. about how easy it is mm. and how quick we would be to identify evil. Yeah, yeah. it seems like it sets up a kind of moral maze uh, for you to, to move through and these characters are kind of different routes uh, through that maze and you have to kind of uh, figure out the moment at which you might do something. Uh, and the unsettling thing is you might get further than you think uh, before you say something or you might allow things to go further um so in that way it kind of hooks in the reader you you kind of have to um let go of your own judgments of these characters because you're you're part of it. Yes, yeah. And I think she achieves that really masterfully. You know, there's a sense that she is so in control of her own um, material and she knows it so well. And it's a book that's full of symbol and metaphor from the figure of the transparent man, who's this kind of anatomical model, which opens the book um, and comes to feel like, I suppose, a, a symbol for how humanity is stripped away by experiences like Buchenwald. Um, and also things like the Goethe Oak, which is, I mean, this is this amazing factual moment which is stranger than fiction uh, which is at the centre of Buchenwald was a famous oak tree that you know it was supposed that the poet Goethe had sat beneath it and and, and written Um, and when the concentration camp was built it died Um, and, and there are all these kind of interesting interrogations into identity and the romance and the romanticism Mm. attached Mm. to the construction of national identity Mm. which again I think connects us to so many of the other books Mm. you know the sense of we we have this kind of European wide hangover around nationalism Mm. and nation formation Um, and even after two world wars we still need to interrogate our ideas of ourselves. Yeah, it reminded me of the other longer book on the shortlist uh, The Art of Losing by Alice Zenater Um, but particularly I was struck by the the epigraphs to this book Uh, we have two, well three quotations one from Thomas Mann and then two from uh, two Buchenwald prisoners Um, And I wonder, uh, how does the book kind of treat history? Uh, You know, does it, um, is it all fact-based or are there some kind of uh, 
fictional elements to it. You know, where does fact and fiction uh, go in this book? I mean, this is such an interesting thing. And I think it's a, a question that comes up kind of ethically in fiction all the time. You know, how much is it real and how much is imagined? And um, uh, Dietrich Hahn, the SS officer, is based on a real um, SS officer. And some of the testimony in his sections is actually verbatim wow. testimony. But I think like many of the other books on the short list, really, we, we, are, we are in a place, a kind of a postmodernist place of question received ideals from mm. history and and also the notion that uh, you know fact is something that can be interrogated too far you know um, and I think really what this book does for me in terms of readership is is it, it exposes the moral relativism of the time and how dangerous that was you know so as a book it will kind of push the the interrogation of fact so far and then go well these are the truths mm. and we are hit with many hard truths mm. about the existence of people at Buchenwald but also with the reactions the contemporary reactions at the time people staring at the prisoners face to face after the camp fell saying this can't be happening mm. when it was mm. so I think Catherine Chigi as an author is interested in reminding us mm. that we can succumb to those dangerous ideas of relativism mm. and uh, you know, as we would say today of post-truth mm. perhaps. Yeah it sounds like not only a really important book and a serious book but also just really fascinating for the way that it opens up so many questions. Um, I'm really looking forward to hearing your conversation about it. Thanks, Sean. So this is me speaking to Catherine Chigi about her wonderful book, Remote Sympathy, nominated by Auckland Libraries and Dunedin Public Libraries in New Zealand. Hi, Catherine, and welcome to this Dublin Literary Award podcast as part of International Literature Festival Dublin. Firstly, congratulations on your shortlisting for Remote Sympathy, which is just an astonishing piece of work, a marvellous achievement, and I'm so delighted to be chatting to you about it today. Um, I'm going to start with a kind of a general question based on my observations of the books I've read so far on the shortlist. Um, and every time I do this, I always find it's, it's, it's very difficult to neatly categorise the books that come in shortlist-wise. But there are often echoes thematically um, that connect some of the books. And, and this year I've noticed that a lot of the books are looking at larger societal and historical issues through the lens of family. Um, and I think Remote Sympathy has a number of different um, intact and fragmented and fragmenting families, um, which kind of anchor the narrative for us in a way. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about how this connects with the book for you? Yes. Um, hi, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's such a treat to be joining you. And I'm, I'm so excited to be on the shortlist, of course. Um, yeah, I definitely um, wanted to explore dynamics within families and also dynamics between families. And so, um, you know, you have this um, relationship of, of shifting power um, between Leonard Weber, who is a, a doctor um, who has been um, imprisoned at Buchenwald by a man called Dietrich Hahn, who was a powerful SS officer. Um, whose wife has been diagnosed with terminal cancer. The men um, are both fathers. They're both men who um, desperately want to protect their wives. I guess I was interested in coming at both of those characters um, from the point of view of how they exist as fathers and as husbands and as family men. And 
and knowing um, the whole time I was writing it that that was the main motivator for their behaviour. Um, and and neither of them um, kind of come out of the book smelling of roses. Certainly Dietrich, the SS officer, doesn't. But um, Leonard is um, also culpable, um, as mm. is Greta, um, Dietrich's wife. Yes, it's it's fascinating, I think, and 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 looking at all of these various different microcosms, um, in the light of the kind of macrocosmic history of of the Holocaust, um, and also then contrasting with the wonderful um chorus of Weimar citizens, who I'd love to talk a little bit more about in a minute, but I don't want to skip ahead because I'd love to go back a little bit to um, I mean, th- this book it's a it's a kind of a historical epic in a way, and I really. I'm fascinated by the various details that you tease out and bring together. Can you tell us a little bit more about the medical history around Leonard's work um, about his miracle machine? So I was actually working on an earlier novel, um, a book called The Wish Child, that is also set in Nazi Germany. And that book um, came out in 2016, 2017. And it was while I was looking into things medical for that book that I read a little bit about electrotherapy in the early 20th century and how popular it was in Europe, but in particular, how popular it was in Germany. And it seemed to offer this miracle cure. It seemed to be able to go where the surgeon's knife couldn't reach and and to... um, work with this kind of invisible magical power um, of electricity to cure the body. So that was really when I had the idea for Leonard, um, the doctor character, and to have him um, invent his own electrotherapy machine. So so while the machine that um, Leonard uses in the book is my invention in a lot of ways, it's also... Um, a real machine and that it's based on um, very similar um, devices that were in operation in the teens, twenties and thirties. Um, and, you know, by reputable places as well, um, the university hospital in Vienna had uh, an electrotherapy machine, but at the same time, um, there was a body called um, League of Doctors to Oppose Quackery. That's a terrible translation, but it was something like that. Um, who were um, very against all these alternative cancer treatments that were springing up, including electrotherapy. Mm. And um, there was this kind of crazed, um, self-styled healer, uh, a man called Tsailais, who um, sort of had what he called his lightning machine, which was basically a shower head that shot arcs from the, um, the electrotherapy machine onto the patient's skin and, and he had, you know, snakes um, mounted on the walls holding light bulbs in their jaws. And it was all very kind of B-grade um, horror movie um, a kind of setup. Um, but, but desperate patients flocked to him. Um, and that's one thing that I wanted to explore in the novel was, was the lengths that we're prepared to go to when we get the kind of diagnosis that Greta gets. And yes. so Dietrich is a, is a kind of a very um, conservative considered man um, but placed in the situation that he's in when his wife um, it seems is going to die he will try this alternative therapy Um, but it was also a time when uh, 
Hitler was pouring enormous funds into cancer research. His own mother had died of the disease and um, he was throwing millions of Reichsmarks at things like fruit juice injections and um, light therapy or, or low vitamin diets or Chinese rhubarb or, or hemlock treatments. Um, and so all this was kind of going on against the, the backdrop of the um, German League to combat quackery. And it was um, a very sort of turbulent time in terms of medicine. And the other thing that I was researching at the same time was the anti-smoking campaign that was begun under the Nazis. And, and looking at the advertising material for that now, it seems strangely modern. And there seemed to be a real awareness of the dangers of smoking and even of um, secondhand smoke. Um, things that feel as if to us they've only been sort of talked about quite recently. But that was all happening then too. Of course, the kind of impetus for that campaign was that we want to protect the health of our German men and our German mothers so that we can continue to, um, you know, build the folk, build the Reich, and so that men can go off and fight. But it was while I was um, researching cancer, researching cancer treatments, that I stumbled across the um, phrase remote sympathy. And that was really, um, you know, a light bulb moment for me. I did want to ask you about that, actually, because I just thought, you know, in a, in a novel that's full of, of wonderful metaphor and symbol, um, I thought the title, which is something I would usually gloss over in a book, but it was something that I came back to again and again because it worked on so many different levels. So I'm delighted. I've interrupted you there just to say, please go on. <laughs> I think I'd pretty much finished that thought. So, yeah, um, I happened to be reading about, um, you know, various uh, historical treatments for cancer. Yes. Once yeah. I decided that I was going to be writing this book about Leonard and his um, possibly or possibly not miraculous machine. And so remote sympathy was a term that yes. was used in medicine um, several hundred years ago. And um, it was used to refer to um, this principle that a certain part of the body that is diseased can affect another part of the body um, that is some distance away physically. Um, and so the body is kind of responding with remote sympathy. Two parts of the body are talking to each other. But there was also this um, theory a few hundred years ago that remote sympathy could also work um, as a curative so that um, a treatment applied to one part of the body could, could positively affect another part of the body some distance away. Um, and so I really loved the way that that spoke to the functioning of Leonard's machine, but also the way that it spoke to um, the sympathy or otherwise that the characters have for the other human beings around them. Yes, and the and the massive failure of empathy that I think is so, you know, beautifully captured in the novel. And um, and it's interesting to hear you talking about things like, you know, the kind of circular nature of medical science and and the way that the, the tobacco lobby and industry in particular um kind of completely unseated our knowledge of the medical dangers of smoking 
uh, to such a great and successful degree over the 20th century, you know, and there are real links to Nazi ideology there, I think. Um, and, and again, to the, the, the wonderful um, moments in the book where you give us these little individual reactions from the citizenry of, of Weimar uh, and who eventually visit the, the camp towards the novel's end. Um, but before we talk about that, I'd love to talk a, bit, a, a little bit about some of the individual characters in the novel all of whom, despite being complex and conflicting and, and, and difficult, are, are deeply fascinating. Um, and I think that the form of how you, you've approached them through things like diary entries and letters is a wonderful way of, of creating that that intimacy and that sense of complicity. Um, but Dietrich Hahn, who you've, who you've mentioned, the SS officer, um, he, he is based, or, or much of his story is based on um, on a real figure, Otto Barnevald. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about where kind of fact and fiction merge there and also about Otto's character and uh, or the figure of Otto and what became of him. Very early on in the writing of the novel I had planned that the figure of Dietrich would actually be the commandant of Buchenwald and that he would be this all-powerful figure who would be the most formidable opponent that Leonard could come up against. Um, Rather quickly, I realised that that wasn't really going to work or that wasn't going to provide enough nuance um, for the story. You know, that that figure, there was a real commandant of Buchenwald, of course, there were several over the years. Um, and the one who was in um, that position in the period that I'm writing about him and Pista is well documented. His history is well known. Um, and it felt as if I would have to be bending history far too much um, to make Dietrich into Hermann Pista. So I decided to give him an administrative role. I suppose, you know, thinking about Hannah Arendt's famous the banality of evil. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm so glad that, um, that I made that decision because it did allow me to create um, a much more three-dimensional figure, I think. Um, you know, I, I have no interest in writing cardboard cutout Nazis. Um, and it might sound strange, but I, but I didn't want to stand in judgment of any of my characters. And I, you know, I think that can be quite dangerous for a writer. Um, I wanted to feel some degree of sympathy for Dietrich, um, yeah. not for his actions in the camp, but as a father, as a husband, I wanted um, to be able to feel some degree of sympathy for him. And so once I decided to make him the camp's administrator, um, the rest of his character really fell into place. I realised that um, he was powerful in the world of Buchenwald, but beyond that, he's a man with an inferiority complex who feels as if he's never lived up to... Um, you know, the things that his, that, that his old school friend has achieved, his school friend whose um, career has gone on to great and glorious heights. Um, and he's the sort of man who um, feels quite satisfied by wearing um, a, a forged ring, a replica ring, depending on what you want to call it. So um, there were these um, very um, rarely awarded um, but deeply coveted silver death's head rings, which were given out by Himmler for extraordinary service to the Reich. 
And Dietrich is the sort of man who desperately wants one, but is never going to get one. And so Greta, um, a, a little while earlier, has um, had him one made by a jeweler for his birthday. And this was something that a lot of S-men S did. Um, and the only way you could tell that they were a replica was because they didn't have Himmler's signature engraved inside the band. So he's quite happy to sort of flaunt this, this fake ring um, on his finger and to try and kind of boost himself um, in that way. He also is a man who develops a gambling problem as the novel progresses. And I, I really enjoyed um, seeing him unravel, I suppose. Um, seeing everything that he's kind of believed in um, just, just fall away. Um, and the way that the novel ends for him, I won't give any clues, but it's, um, he doesn't get a happy ending. <laughs> No, absolutely. Um, and I'm I'm also fascinated by by Greta Hand's character and how you how you kind of develop her throughout the novel, but also how we I feel like we almost more than any other character, we see the world of the novel through her eyes. Um, and there are some moments uh, quite early on in the novel where you build some absolutely uh, spectacular tension in the way that she is slowly starting to realise the truth of the world in which she's living. Um, so can you can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because I feel almost maybe it's just that I, I felt myself identifying with her and maybe other readers will 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 feel differently. But uh, I feel that you 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 play a marvellous trick on us with her where we become very complicit, I feel, in the world of the novel um, through our identification with Greta um, and also through the notion of faith, which I think resides very much uh, in the novel within Greta and um, faith and miracles and the limitations of both seem to be a hugely important theme in the novel. And I think Greta is our uh, vehicle for that in the novel. Can you talk to me a little bit about her and how her voice and her story came to you? Sure. I guess I see Greta as um, the person who bridges the distance between Dietrich and Leonard. So she is the person that brings them together. Um, she is the person who um, is really the reason that Leonard is deported to Buchenwald in the first place. And she is the reason that Leonard kind of does the unthinkable really as a prisoner uh, in that he not only comes to an SS officer's house um, on a regular basis, but he lays his hands on the wife of an SS officer. I really loved building the relationship between her and Leonard and bringing it to a point of friendship, of intimacy, I suppose, that ends up being um, far more intimate to Greta than anything she experiences with her husband. Um, that was really satisfying. I loved the idea that. She is this sort of giddy, naive um, social climber at the start of the book uh, when they move away from Munich and, and Dietrich's career is, is really starting to take off with this considerable promotion to this position at Buchenwald. And perhaps at the start of the book, we 
can buy that Greta really doesn't understand where she's going. Perhaps we can we can allow her that, perhaps not. Mm. Um, but as the novel progresses, she knows herself that there are terrible things going on just through this little patch of forest, minutes walk through this little patch of forest. Um, she can smell it. She can hear it. Um, and that, you know, there is a terrible price to be paid for coming to this place. And the cancer, you know, can be read um, metaphorically as, as um, uh, something that is eating away at her as she becomes more and more aware of exactly where she's living and what her husband's job entails. And yet she still tries to um, maintain some degree of willful ignorance, I guess. Um, I unearthed quite a few photographs of the officers' villas and floor plans of the officers' villas. Um, so there, there was this, this street of 10 beautiful houses um, that were built on the outskirts of the camp um, for the high-ranking officers and their families. And they were, uh, they looked like ski lodges. They were very luxurious, very well appointed. And it was meant to be a, a kind of self-contained little enclave for families. You know, absurd as that seems. Um, there are also photos in the archives at the Buchenwald Memorial of um, officers' children playing in the gardens there, and they look just like um, kids anywhere playing with go-karts and playing leapfrog and, you know, fiddling with the goldfish in the pond. There's also um, quite a lot in the archives too of um, the objects that the officers' wives could order to beautify even further these villas. And so, you know, very quickly it was realised that a lot of the prisoners are in fact master craftsmen who um, can sculpt me a, a statue of my dog if that's what I want or can make a beautiful parquet floor if that's what I want or can, you know, hand tailor me some curtains um, using fabric from Paris if that's what I want. And so this is how Greta um, occupies her time at the opening of the, the book and really things start to sell when she's looking at her beautiful new curtains and realises that there's a flaw in the mm -hmm. fabric. Um, one of the roses um, in the pattern of the fabric is not right. I um, did enjoy building that feeling of tension within her mm -hmm. where she is more and more aware that she can't keep turning away from what's happening but at the same time she doesn't know what her life will look like if she does um, make a stand and at the same time her health is deteriorating and she is um, becoming physically weaker and weaker to the point where she really has no choice but just to confine herself to her sick bed and and let Leonard um, treat her. Uh, you mentioned faith and the placebo effect as well, and that was that was something that I loved exploring through the character of Greta. Um, so she uh, was raised Catholic in Munich, um, but when she began seeing Dietrich, 
that was something that she had to put aside that was not acceptable um, mm. for a Nazi wife to um, still be associated with. And it's when she becomes sick that she begins to reach for that faith again um, as kind of the only thing that she still believes in. And she asks Leonard if he can bring her a Bible. And Leonard knows that there are numerous Bibles in the camp, um, in the, the storehouse that, that um, stores the prisoners' belongings that they bring with them when they, when they come to the camp. But he also knows that he's putting himself at great risk by um, trying to pull strings to get one for her. And both of them know that they're risking the wrath of Dietrich if he finds out what they've been up to, that they've been reading the Bible together, scandalously enough. <laughs> uh, so Leonard comes up with the idea of the two of them hollowing out the the wedding copy of Mein Kampf, which is never read, you know, and this was this was true for most Germans is that they all had to display I'm sure. Yeah, they all had to display Mein Kampf on the bookshelf at home, but no one ever read it. Um and so Dietrich, uh, sorry, Leonard is fairly confident that Dietrich will never notice that they've made this um, little hollow, this Bible-sized hollow within the pages of um, Mein Kampf. I just really loved that sort of little, little disguise um, in the book. But yes, I mean, Leonard is absolutely banking on the power of the placebo effect, on the power of belief and of faith. Um, to keep Greta alive until the end of the war. Um, he knows that the war is on the turn for Germany. Um, and especially after um, a, an American raid on the camp in August 1944, up until that point, um, the officers at Buchenwald were kind of operating under this false sense of security that um, the Allies would never bomb a camp because of the presence of the prisoners, thousands of prisoners. Um, but with the advent of much more precise bombing, the Americans were able to target um, really just the, um, the weapons factories yeah. um, on one, one side of the camp and there were very few prisoner fatalities. Uh, so after that point, yeah, things are, are really starting to um, look pretty bleak for, for Dietrich, for the SS. And Leonard is aware that it can only be a matter of time before Buchenwald is liberated, but he doesn't know how long that's going to be. And he has to keep Greta alive until that point in order to save himself and in order for Dietrich to make good on his promise which is, um, you know, this kind of devil's pact that the two men enter into, um, whereby Dietrich says, if you save my wife, I will ensure that you survive and that your family survive. I will ensure that no harm comes to them. So, of course, Leonard agrees. Um, but it's a, a huge source of conflict for him as a doctor, as a healer, um, that he is essentially lying to his patient and pretending that um, this may provide a miracle cure. It, it comes back to me, or it brings me back 
a little bit to the sense of the um, the, the transparent man, um, the symbol of the transparent man, this kind of wonderful anatomy model, this real, real anatomy model at the beginning of the novel. And I feel like there's a sense that as the novel progresses, we see people's layers of humanity stripped away. Um, can you tell, talk to me a little bit about the, the, the transparent man and the, the kind of the symbol of that? Mm. I'm glad that you mentioned him. Um, I was I was fighting quite hard to um, get an image of the transparent man on the cover, <laughs> but my publishers both thought that it was far too creepy. Um, so the transparent man was um, another thing that I stumbled across when I was researching The Wish Child, the earlier book. And I saw a picture of him. And so he was a, a life-size human figure um, built of transparent plastic um, and he was exhibited in um, the Dresden Hygiene Museum uh, in 1930 and he was a sensation. It was the first time that people had really um, been able to get a, a three-dimensional idea of what they looked like on the inside and of course you know I love that on a metaphorical level too. Um, he was built around a real skeleton and um, all the nerves and arteries um, and veins were constructed of 12 kilometers of different colored wire. Wow. And there were um, plastic um, reconstructions of his organs, which you could also see, and which um, lit up, there were bulbs that lit up each organ in turn and a recording would play. Um, as as people were were watching him in the museum, and he attracted crowds. Um, he was such a sensation that he went on tour, and America actually ordered um, their own transparent man to exhibit in the states. I think in 1937, definitely before the war, and similarly sensational over there. Um, the transparent man was destroyed um, during the bombing of Dresden at the end of the war. And, and, and this is actually where remote sympathy starts. It is with um, that um, mention of the, the kind of melted remains of the transparent man and the fact that it's at that exhibition, um, which Leonard has gone to in order to, as a medical student, really try to wrap his brain around um, the pathways in the body that his machine might might work on. So he's gone to Dresden specifically to see the transparent man, and that's where he meets his wife, Anna, for the first time. He's a really important figure, um, the transparent man, and I was so disappointed when I realised that I couldn't see him um, in person anymore because he'd been destroyed. It's quite apt, though, for the novel that he is he is a, a lost item. And, and it makes me think as well of the of, of there are so many lost items in, in the novel. But another one that feels very symbolic is the Goethe Oak, which stood in Buchenwald. Um, but it brings me to something I'm really dying to talk about, which is, um, you know, the, one of the things I've, I've loved about this novel was the form and the ambition of the form and how uh, fluent it is, the transition between the different, uh, you know, diary entries, letters, um, but the, the kind of core of voices from Weimar and Weimar as a character within the novel itself, symbolising so much about German self-image and culture. Can you talk to me a little bit about how, how that idea came to you and, and the execution of it? So 
the first seed for this novel was planted um, back in 1996, in fact. Um, I was living in Berlin then and studying there. I lived there for three years altogether in the mid-1990s. And in 1996, um, our professor, um, he was, he was um, leading a class of foreign students who um, had enrolled in this paper on German history. And so he took us um, to some beautiful parts of Germany, you know, some of the most picturesque, romantic parts of Germany. Um, he also took us on a walking tour of the university campus and showed us the exact buildings where human cadavers and human remains were used um, as um, teaching specimens, as, um, as parts of uh, medical experiments, and they were, you know, the victims of, of um, the Third Reich. So that was quite shocking to know that this is where I'm studying. And, you know, for quite a, a naive young girl from the other side of the world, from a place where, um, you know, geographically World War II didn't touch us, that was quite eye-opening. He also took us on a trip to Buchenwald, and we stayed overnight there and we slept in the former SS barracks, um, although obviously we did not sleep very well there. And one of the things that stayed with me forever from that um, trip was what he told us about the Goethe Oak. When the hill called the Ettersberg was um, designated as the site for Buchenwald, so the Ettersberg being a hill that looks down on the city of Weimar, very, very close to Weimar, um, Buchenwald's first prisoners were ordered to fell the site of trees, mostly beech trees, some oaks, um, and they were ordered not to lay a finger on this one particular ancient oak tree. The legend attached to that oak tree was that the great writer Goethe on his um, walks on the Ettersberg would rest in the shade of that oak tree and would write. And so to the Nazis who wanted to kind of resurrect this sort of noble idea um, of, of a Germany that they felt um, belonged to them, to them the tree was very important and, and very significant. Um, to the prisoners, the tree represented the, the, the kind of Germany that was long lost, you know, the Germany of genuine brotherhood um, that had absolutely been trampled over. And the prisoners erected a, a little fence, um, a little iron fence around the base of the tree, and they, because of that fence, they called it Buchenwald's first prisoner. Um, so there was a lot of um, symbolism attached to this tree. And the legend went that if the tree perished, then so too would Germany. And as it happened in August 1944, during that precision bombing raid by the Americans, um, some sparks drifted over to the Goethe Oak, which had not been looking very healthy at all, I should say, um, since the site had been cleared and since um, it was no longer getting enough water. Um, so the tree had been kind of looking fairly sickly um, since the start of the war, but um, it was hit during that bombing raid and burned 
to the ground and had to be felled. And when that happened, um, the prisoners began to take slivers of the tree as these kind of relics um, of, yeah, something that felt lost to them, but that still um, retained um, some sense of magic, I suppose, or some sense of, of power. And so I decided that I would I would have Leonard taking a sliver of the tree, but I would also have Dietrich taking a sliver of the tree. When Dietrich yeah, tries to take his, uh, he gets a he gets a splinter that becomes infected, <laughs> as if the tree is repelling him. <laughs> yeah, I mean it is it is one of those fascinating little historical accounts within the novel that feels stranger than fiction. You know that the wonderful symbolism of putting this uh, surrounding this oak with this place of horrors um, and then it's slowly dying um, before burning to the ground. I mean, it's just uh, it's just such a rich uh, little historical vein within the novel. It's just fantastic. It was so important um, that mm. I that I learned about that on that trip in 1996. And I and I remember listening to it then and thinking, I know this belongs in my work somehow. I don't know how but I'm going to tuck it away because I know it belongs there somehow. And, and yeah, 20 years later, I figured out where it belonged. But the other thing um, that happened with the remains of the tree was that um, a particular prisoner, a, a, a German communist prisoner called Bruno Arpitz, who, who is a towering figure um, in the history of Buchenwald, he retained a, a block of the oak and he carved a sculpture from it, which he based on all the death masks that surrounded him in the pathology building where he was forced to work in the camp. And so uh, his sculpture was called The Last Face, carved from the heart of the Goethe Oak. And it, um, for him, was a, a single face that represented thousands of faces that had gone up in smoke the way that the tree went up in smoke. Um, and for me, that sculpture functions as the, the kind of dark counterpart to the transparent man who is this creature of light and transparency. Um, and I knew that I wanted or that I needed to see um, the original of that sculpture. And I figured out that it was um, in a museum in Berlin. So uh, when I went back to Buchenwald in 2018 to research the novel, I also built in a few um, research days in Berlin and I was on a really tight schedule. So I was like running through these galleries, trying to get to the bit in the museum where I, I was going to see this sculpture. And as I was running through one particular gallery, I looked to the side and there was the transparent man. And it was this weird kind of miracle of research and I couldn't believe what I was seeing and I discovered that this was the American transparent man ah. and he'd been brought back to Germany and I could see him and um, it was a wonderful moment you know those those miracles that happen when you're deep in research uh, I love them I live for them um, and he was exactly the same as the original transparent man with one important difference and that was because he was made for the American market he had no genitals <laughs> that's fantastic <laughs> I 
did also get to see um, the last face and and the thing that I hadn't realised until I saw it in person from all sides was that Bruno Arpitz had left the charred back of it um, in situ, had left those burn marks um, showing. And it was such a, a beautiful um, kind of... Uh, such a beautiful way of talking about the fate of a lot of the prisoners um, who passed through Falkenfeld and who left via the chimney. And there's a wonderful moment in the novel where the, the prisoners are passing it from one to the other and just holding it. Um, and that sense of, of loss made solid, made tactile somehow is is a beautiful thing in the novel. Um, I, I'm just intrigued as well by your own. Obviously, you've written about the war before in The Wish Child um, and you've been speaking about your time spent in Germany. And um, did it feel important to you now? I mean, the, the Second World War is a history that fascinates us and has lessons for every moment in, in subsequent history, I think. But did it feel important to you now in this current moment Um which obviously <laughs> is a very complicated moment in history, uh, to write this novel about about humanity's reaction to brutality. Um, did it feel important to be writing about that now? Yes, it did. I was quite horrified to realise that um, the, the results of a survey that um, came out a, a few years ago by an American body called Claims Conference, and they represent... Um, Jewish victims and and their descendants of um, of Nazi oppression, and they negotiate for um, restitution um, for the return of stolen property, for um, payment to be made to those people, and they conducted a survey in the states um, of American young people aged between eighteen and thirty nine. And that survey showed that almost half, so 48%, um, didn't know that 6 million Jews were killed during the Holocaust. And one in 10 thought that Jewish people had caused the Holocaust. Um, Almost a quarter, 23%, believed that the Holocaust was a myth or had been exaggerated or they weren't sure. And that was shocking. that 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 kind of ignorance is so widespread in the 21st century and it was a real reminder to me that we have to keep telling these stories um that the past can't be left in the past um that you know we're still in danger of being swayed by the power of propaganda or fake news if you want to you know give it its its current name mm. um that um, we are still prepared to look the other way when we're confronted with truths that are uncomfortable or that um, we're prepared to tell ourselves certain lies if we feel threatened. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I, I really wanted to lift the lid on that, um, dark human capacity um, for ignoring evil, even evil that's right on our doorstep sometimes. 
Yes. And I think, again, that makes us all, it reminds us all that we are all or have the capacity to be capacity to be those citizens in, in Weimar whose voices you, you tease out for us so beautifully. Um, Catherine, thank you so much for that. Um, I, I really do feel that this is a book we could talk about over a series of interviews. <laughs> um, it's such a fantastic achievement. But I'd love to finish off by asking a question which I ask everybody um, on this shortlist, which is... You know, since this is a prize nominated by libraries, which is an aspect of it I always find so exciting and wonderful. Um, talk to me a little bit about what libraries have meant to you as a writer. I love that aspect of the prize too. And I'm so grateful to Auckland Libraries and Dunedin Public Libraries for nominating me. Um, so my mother was uh, one of our school librarians at my primary school. So, and she always um, encouraged us to read and instilled a great love of reading in me. Probably one of my earliest memories is being taken to the library every week by her, our, our little public library, and always going for the same book, which was The Very Hungry Caterpillar. <laughs> and she eventually decided that she was going to buy me my own copy of this book. But when she did that, I didn't want that copy. I wanted the library copy because there was something magical to me even then and something powerful to me even then about this notion of um, communal activity, that libraries are this great democratizer and, and anyone can join them and anyone can um, dip into the knowledge um, right there at their fingertips. And, you know, I saw libraries and see libraries as these um, temples of knowledge and librarians as, as kind of the guardians to that knowledge. I think they're magical places. And um, I worked in libraries for many years when I was a student. Um, one of my jobs in the late 1980s was stalking the floors on our um, in our university library and telling people to be quiet it's <laughs> not a job that I enjoyed um, and the nickname for for that role was librocop <laughs> <laughs> but you know I'm I'm loving um, taking our six-year-old daughter to the library regularly and and um, seeing her love of story and her love of books begin to flourish too and and just embracing all the fantastic programs that libraries offer now as well so there's one that our um that our little public library does which Alice and I have gone to a lot um which is reading to dogs and so the the um the council will bring along these dogs that have been rehomed through their rehoming program and the dogs will sit there and they'll they'll listen to children who might um, you know, be needing to build their confidence a little bit with reading aloud, the dogs will listen to children reading aloud to them. That is such a lovely idea. Um, and I and I have caught myself, it's funny, I, I love dogs and I'm more of a cat person, but I do love dogs. And I sometimes find myself walking down the street and smiling at dogs the way I'd smile at a passerby and then thinking, am I a bit mad? But this story that you've told me, this anecdote about the children reading to dogs has made me feel like I'm I'm completely on the level. It's OK. <laughs> but I love that idea. It's a fabulous way to build confidence. That's just gorgeous. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that, Catherine, and for talking about, about your work with us today. 
today. Um, I think if any readers haven't got the book, um, I would absolutely encourage them to go out and get it, uh, either in your local independent bookshop or through your local library. Um, And Catherine, we'd like to wish you just the very best of luck with the shortlisting too. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Jessica. Thank you for listening and be sure to tune in to the other episodes as we count down to the 2022 Dublin Literary Award winner announcement. You can read this year's shortlisted titles from public libraries around Ireland or borrow them as e-books and e-audiobooks on the free BorrowBox app. Plus, you can enter to win your own copies of the six shortlisted books by entering the giveaway running now through the 17th of May on ILF Dublin's social media channels. Wherever you're listening from, we invite you to join us for the online award ceremony on Monday the 23rd of May. You can book your ticket online for free at www.ilfdublin.com and browse the other fantastic events in this year's International Literature Festival Dublin programme.